The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It's episode five already and on today's edition we're talking about the English sparkling wine revolution with one of its insurgents, Jacob Ledley, the creator of Black Chalk, a brand that is barely three years old but has already outgrown its trophy cupboard. Uh, Chardonnay is this week's Desert Island drink. Uh, Mick O'Connell, MW, will be joining us from Dublin to wax lyrical about this most versatile of grape varieties. And tequila, tequila. And let's not forget mezcal, of course. We're getting all agave, chatting about Mexico's gifts to the world with Dawn Davis, master of wine. And she's also a, a master of all things mezcal and tequila too. Plus, as always, medal-winning recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Britain is famous for many things, uh, but until very recently, wine wasn't really one of them. How that has changed, thanks to a few pioneers and a focus on the Champagne grapes, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Mernier, English wine is on a roll, led, of course, by sparkling, although the still wines are starting to make some waves too. Uh, it's now being lavished with praise well beyond our borders, and that's thanks to people like our next guest. Jacob Ledley is one of those at the vanguard of the English sparkling boom with his black chalk duo of sparkling wines which have scooped awards including a gold medal at the IWSC and Jacob uh, joins us now. Hello Jacob. Hi David, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. All the better for uh, you being there. Um, I was doing my research and uh, I was quite surprised. I assumed you were immersed in uh, wine for, for all of your career but I was quite surprised to see that you had a career change. You were in the city for a while, weren't you? That's right, yeah. I was... Um... I was involved for my sins in um, in the, a variety of investment banks, um, and it was something that I really fell into as opposed to chose as a career direction. Um, but it was um, it I've I've been making wine now for a lot longer than I was I was in the city, so or it feels like a lot longer. It's actually just a little bit longer. <laughs> um, but it so was, was a kind yeah. of calling then. Did 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 you always want to make wine? Have you always appreciated wine? Um, I think that's that is no. Um, I haven't always appreciated wine. Um, I learned to love wine during my twenties um, and while I was living in London. It wasn't a calling either. I I would say that I didn't want to be in investment banking. Um, I didn't find it um, challenging enough for what I wanted as a career um, but it was I think looking back on it it was probably a desire to go and do something more creative um, which is something that I, I see amongst the rest of my family um, when I look at them and, um, and, 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 and so I think the idea of wine the idea of growing something creating something was the real drive behind my initial interest um, and there's been lots of different steps on that on, on, on that road of that career change, if you like. So English sparkling is a relatively new thing still. Um, did you uh, kind of fall into sparkling wine then in, in that sort of same way? I think, I, well, I went to Plumpton College and, and I 
and I and I studied, and I had a, a real interest in in New Zealand and in Central Otago Pino in particular. Um, and I think being at Plumpton and and being having your eyes open to what was being done on the doorstep was was a fantastic um, experience. And and I think my interest grew from that and getting involved, going and volunteering with you know some producers around the southeast. Um, and my interest and in, in the idea of being involved in something that was new and that was pushing boundaries, that was on the very edge of what was possible in terms of winemaking and grape growing, um, became really exciting. Um, and that's where the hook came, if you like. It, that's, that was, if there was a calling, then it was, it, it was that. It was to, to, to be part of a growing and emerging English wine industry. And it's often said that uh, in very simple terms, we have the kind of climate that uh, the Champagne region had maybe 30 years ago. We have a similar kind of terroir. That is um, a, a kind of oversimplification, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a huge oversimplification. It's, um, it's, it's nice to put that image into people's minds um, because obviously English wine has for 10, 15 years tried to put itself on a, on a level with champagne, which is, um, which is understandable. Um, I don't think it's anything we need to do anymore, if, if I'm completely honest. But we do have similar temperatures to, to what champagne had maybe in the 50s and the 60s. But uh, I think everybody knows, any, anyone that lives in England or um, knows our weather knows that we, we have quite erratic weather. It's much wetter here. Um, we have areas that have chalk bedrock, like in Champagne, um, but there's also huge swathes of, of of the southeast and 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 now into um, Essex and and Norfolk and and everywhere that people are growing grapes that are not similar to Champagne at all. So, how do you cope with uh, that erratic uh, British weather then? Um, with difficulty, <laughs> um, I mean, we are we are right in the midst of um, frost at the moment. So mm. spring frosts are a big issue and they've been a huge issue across all of Europe this year, but um, it's England's turn as, um, as bud burst hits us. And we, we struggle with it. You know, it's, um, I have a passion for, for wanting to make great wines, but from a, from a pure business point of view, um, dealing with how, we manage those um, climate conditions and the effect that it has on production volumes and quality is a real, real challenge. We have a fantastic vineyard manager here at, at Black Chalk, James Mattia, um, and he is at the absolute coal front of battling those weather conditions and, and trying to ensure that we grow the very best grapes that we can. And then, you know, the winemaking is not straightforward in itself either. We we, we get very, very different levels of quality into the winery in each year. And, and it's our job in the winery, myself and Zoe, to try and produce something that really stands up to what it is we're trying to, we're trying to produce, which, which is the very best wines in every single vintage. Um, and it's, but it, is, it, it, it really is a challenge. And I, I can imagine that. I, I mean, I lost my baby courgette plants about a week or so ago. I mean, we're talking six baby courgette plants and I was devastated. So God knows what it does with a, a vineyard. But what has happened with the frost? Um, well, so far for us, not, not a lot. We had a very cold night the other night um, where we did actually put in place our frost protection 
um, which is basically large heaters in the vineyard and lots of other producers around here lit bougie candles. So um, again, to try and um, sort of ward off the frost, um, but there's a, it's a lot of work. It's lots of um, sort of sleepless nights, um, checking temperatures against the vines. And at the moment we're all good, but like, as I mentioned, a lot of Europe wasn't so lucky this year. And um, I think it will go down as one of the worst frost years um, across France in particular, um, but not limited to France um, for, for decades. It's, uh, it is a real worry. And uh, as I said, it rather knocks my uh, courgette plants into a, a cocked hat, to be honest. But um, going back to that, uh, that parallel that is often drawn between English sparkling wine and champagne, and you talked about whether we still need to be doing that. Um, how do you define the style that is English? So I get asked this question quite a lot, and I think it's something that people want to try and want to try and pin down. Um, now, obviously, I can only talk from my own experience, and over the years of of making many, many, many sparkling wines, there were some key components of of English fruit um, and base wines that that I felt were really. Uh, shining lights in terms of what England did really, really well. Um, and one of those is purity of fruit, um, in particular for me from, from the chalk downlands um, that we have across the southeast, um, not limited to the southeast, but um, the grapes that I've predominantly worked with come from there. Um, and so that, that real bright purity of fruit is something that I try to celebrate in our wines and, and try to manage try to retain as much as possible in the finished wines. Um, and we're talking about a three, four year process uh, to try and keep that fruit in the wines. Um, but also the freshness of the acidity, that brisk acidity that we have that, that allow you to, to carry the fruit that give the wine um, longevity um, and, and finding ways of, of building texture and building um, building weight into the wines is a challenge in this country. I think people are getting better at blending um, and, and, and seeing where the wines are going to go in three to five years. Um, but I think for me, those, the, 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 those two high top line things, the, the purity of fruit and the freshness of this issue, I want to celebrate that rather than remove it we don't do any deacid we don't deacidify at all um we carefully choose what we put through malolactic fermentation because we want to retain that fruit um i'd rather have a fresh vibrant wine than than something that's you know lacking that acidity and and maybe relying more on the autolytic side um that some champagnes, not all champagnes, would would tend to do. Well, on the subject of autolysis, does it always have to be uh, the traditional method, what used to be referred to as the, the method champenoise, as far as you're concerned? Uh, no, no, it, it, it really doesn't. I mean, it does for black chalk. That's the style of wine that I want to try and create, but I'm not going to sit here and tell people what they should and shouldn't like. Um, I like all sorts of wines and I'm not going to be told what I like either. I don't, I try to make a wine that 
I enjoy and I try to make a wine that I think is good quality and that people will will sit and enjoy. Hopefully, some people will really appreciate it. Um, there's a lot a lot of time and effort goes into it. Um, traditional method historically um, has a bit of a cachet around it because of the time uh, that goes into producing those wines. But there are very good Charmat method wines out there. They are aimed at a different um, a different consumer on, on on the whole, and you know certainly certainly not just traditional method, but there there is a place for it, and and that's where black chalk will continue to aim at. So black chalk, it uh, it feels like it's been around uh, for a while, but I I think from the top of my head, you're you're only now in your third or, or fourth vintage. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we're just releasing our twenty seventeen classic which is the third release and the 2018 wild rose which will be the fourth so it's kind of in between the two and it's done phenomenally well already um tell us about the name i'm assuming the chalk is a a nod to the terroir uh it 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 is a little bit um you know coming up with a name for a brand is is a real long process (laughs) we went through so many so many different options but the whole we wanted something modern and we wanted something that was um was quite striking I, I have a lot of um, respect for the, for the fruit that's grown on these on these chalk diamonds, like I've mentioned already, and and so the idea of black chalk, um, which is um, a tool that artists used or used to use to sketch ideas onto canvas um, before they go on to paint a more complete um, painting in whatever medium they were using. That once we'd um, discovered what that was and, and it brought into it the creative aspect, the idea of blending and sketching ideas and, and, and all of that, it, it really appealed to me and what, what wine is to me as a winemaker and the idea of the chalk just all fitted together. So, um, yeah, we went ahead with it. And, um, and fortunately enough, we had a very good graphic designer who was able to come up with our now very familiar smudge on the front of our bottle. Which um, which has done you know wonders for the for the wine as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this. I think it's a great brand. I I, I think the smudge is, uh, is is fantastic as well. And it is the sales have gone um, through the roof, haven't they? I I, I was looking at your website and uh, the previous vintage is now sold out, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, we've um, we've we've actually not had any wine at all um, for sale, and we've if <laughs> if it wasn't. F- for the pandemic, we would have been in a much um, a much more difficult position. Um, but I'm complaining about it. It's, um, it's been absolutely fantastic and great that people are getting behind local produce because with with everything that's happened, whether it's Brexit, the pandemic, um, I can't I can't thank consumers enough for for really getting behind um, all English producers. Um, and we've really seen the benefit of that with um, with selling all through our previous vintages completely and we launched the new ones just the other week and um, we were laughing or I was laughing with our with our sales team because on the day of release we were having a conversation about running out already um, in (laughs) within a couple of months and um, and we've we've uh, we're going to have to put some more plans in place for what we're going to need to do but it's a it's a nice position to be in we are small production so it's not as if we're selling hundreds of thousands of bottles, um, but that's what Black Chalk's about. We're small production, quality focused, and hopefully people are, you know, cutting in onto that and, and, and are enjoying the wines. 
And will you expand? Will you, you know, buy more vineyards, buy in more grapes, uh, make more of it? I've got a kind of a a 10-year plan, if you like, in my head as to where we can go. And it's quite conservative in terms of how quickly we grow. I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious of trying to, it's a bit of a cliche, but trying to run before we can walk. I want to keep the focus on the quality. Um, We've got a great team here. They're all pushing in the same direction. We're all involved in every aspect. Um, We're all out doing frost fighting over the next two weeks. We're all going to be bottling in three weeks' time. It's um, it's a real team effort, Um, but there is no doubt that, you know, we, we really are small production. So, I do plan to increase um, production a little bit. Last year, didn't actually increase production that much, but what we did do is increase the the number of wines that we make. So we've added a few new projects, but they're all small scale. I don't think any of the new projects are over a couple of thousand, maybe three, 4,000 bottles a piece. And again, that's about trying to keep the quality up, but just adding adding some new interest into the range. The GB wine scene uh, must be a very exciting place uh, to, to be at the moment. Um, which uh, of your, uh, I, I use the word in inverted, in inverted commas, uh, do you admire? Which are the sparkling wines that you would go to um, beyond your own? That's a good question. There's some really, really good wines out there. Um, I've got a huge amount of respect for all of the producers who've you know, been around since for almost 20 years. There's a lot said about Nightimber. Um, I think they, you know, they've got a great team there. They're a different beast um, in terms of what they're trying to achieve. But the Ridge Views and 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 people like that are, are absolutely fantastic. Um, in terms of winemakers and wines, I've I've got a huge amount of respect for Charlie Holland over in uh, uh, in Kent at Gusborne. Um, again, they're a slightly different beast, but really fantastic team, really good ethos, um, and they're making some really standout wines. Mm. Um, they would be right up there for me. Um, and then there's a whole host of other winemakers and, and new things coming on on stream all the time. I can actually keep up with the new projects that are coming that are coming along, um, and it's really exciting. You're right; it's it, it, it's exciting to be part of that and and to and to be constantly challenged. Um, and you mentioned rivals; it's it it's it's all very friendly at the moment, um, and rightly so, because we're all trying to achieve the same thing. Um, especially internationally, and um, and there is a feeling of people pulling together and and supporting each other to a certain extent, and a friendly rivalry. Um, but I think I think the winemakers out there that that I that I've got a huge amount of respect for are the ones that are proper getting their sleeves rolled up and still stuck in in the winery every single day. That's what winemaking is for me. Um, I don't ever want to step away from that. It's it it it's about being in contact with the wines. It's about tasting them every day. That's not always possible for everyone, I know. But um, but those winemakers that that manage to find that balance and actually are involved is um, is brilliant. Well, I should let you get back to the winery, but before we do, um, you mentioned you've just released uh, your latest uh, wines, the latest vintage. Um, tell us about that. So yeah, the 2017 classic um, is a very similar beast if you like to the 2016 classic um 17 was a, a bit of a challenging year it was a bit of a frost um wasn't a, 
a stellar vintage, but um, but the wines are precise, um, and it's, um, it's it's got a big chunk of Meunier in there, which all of our classics have, which gives it um, a little bit of texture and and, and red fruit on the palate. Um, it's just been released, so um, we're looking forward to seeing how that goes. Um, and then the Wild Rose um, 18. Um, 18 is a bit of a milestone vintage for English wine. It was one of the largest productions ever. It's also one of the best vintages in terms of um, ripeness levels and quantity. Um, I would I would just say that I think... Um, slight caveat with 18s that I would um, watch out for wines where people did go for for quality over quantity because there was certainly plenty of both, but not necessarily in the same in the same um, places. Um, and the Wild Rose really represents that lovely warm summer that we had, and there's some really rich ripe red fruits in there. Um, but again, very delicate. Um, style of rosé quite pale um and yeah i'm looking forward to seeing how that how that does with the um with the consumers and our visitors because um i tasted it the other day and it's uh it's it's really showing well at the moment lovely oh well i i love the wild rose i think it's uh, really very beautiful outstanding actually so i look forward to tasting that one but jacob will let you go uh, back to uh, the winery but um thank you very much for talking to us on the drinking hour thank you very much the Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, it's time for our first trio of award-winning wines and spirits from the IWSC 2020. Our first recommendation has to be this a gold medal winning English sparkler from a producer that has punched above its weight, having only been established a few short years ago. Sounds familiar? Uh, Black Chalk Classic Cuvée 2016 was singled out by the judges for its fresh white fruit on the nose, expressive, savoury and citrusy with a crisp and refreshing finish. Very well balanced and consistent from start to finish. Lovely, said the judges. Uh, that's Jacob's Black Chalk Classic Cuvée. It's normally £35 at blackchalkwine.co.uk. Last time I looked, that vintage is actually sold out. Uh, but as we heard, uh, he's onto the new one. Uh, or you could try getting hold of the previous vintage at heritagewinesuk.co.uk, uh, as I've seen it there. Next, another gold medal winner, this time from the spirits category, 58 Gin. Described as bold, rich and creamy, this gin offers up a smorgasbord of delightful juniper, mint and sugary lemon zest. Full, rounded and soft in the mouth, it's an exquisitely balanced example of what the most refined spirit elixir can deliver. Wow. They won an IWSC trophy for best gin producer. Hardly surprising. And they apparently have a gin school as well, but I shall stick with their gold medal winner. It's £30 at 58gin.com. And it's to Bulgaria for our third choice, a variety that may not be that familiar to you, Gamza. Bononia Estate Gomotazzi Gamza 2019 won a silver medal, with the judges saying it was a charming example of the varietal, with bright red fruit and sweet strawberry character. The palate is clean and focused with great acidity. 
Gamza is a wonderful, elegant red, perfect for summer drinking with just a light chill. I know the variety better from Hungary, where it's known as Kadarka, and it really is one of my favourite summer drinking reds. This example is at tivolywines.co.uk for $13.99. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now it's time for our Desert Island Drink, where we invite a leading professional to share with us their passion for a particular grape variety, a wine, a whole region or a spirit. Making his choice today for us is Master of Wine Mick O'Connell, uh, a consultant, a wine merchant in Dublin, Neighbourhood Wine, and a member of the judging committee at the International Wine and Spirit Competition, for which uh, I also judge, although I'm not on the judging committee, I should say. Um, Mick, welcome to The Drinking Hour. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You've chosen to bring to your desert island uh, a very popular grape variety. Um, it's Chardonnay. Uh, why? The one and only Chardonnay. Um, good question. Good question. People, I, I get asked all the time, as I'm sure you do, David, what, what's your favourite wine? What's your favourite this? What's your favourite that? And I always kind of frame it in my mind as a thing of my top 10 wine experiences or the most memorable wine experiences that I can think of. And they always seem to be Chardonnay. They are the ones that have stood out most across my kind of career of drinking. And um, and for that reason, I have to put Chardonnay there. I know that for some people, it's it's not the most fashionable variety, but for me, it's the most delicious. To hell with fashion, frankly. Uh, it, it, but it has, as you say, had a, a bad rap in recent times. Um, the nonsense of the ABC movement, the anything but Chardonnay movement, um, which, I mean, to call it a movement, a bit of a joke, really. But anyway, it was, it was kind of crazy. But um, why do you think um, ABC happened? I, I think it was kind of a reaction to what was probably happening in the in particularly Australia, but also California at the time. And this is kind of, you know, late 80s, all across the 90s, maybe even early 2000s to a degree. But you were getting people who were probably over oaking their wines and over oaking their wines when the wines were already super, super ripe. So you ended up with these basically sweet and luscious bombs of Chardonnay that ended up being really quite one-dimensional um, and a bit flat, for want of a better word. And I think probably the best examples of Chardonnay, like Chablis, um, it, it's all about how vivid and vivacious and all the V words that, that it can be. And, you know, consumers often say to you in, in a shop or on a, on a floor, um, it's, you know, I really like Chablis, but I don't like Chardonnay. And, and it's kind of a wine trade laugh, you know, that you're saying, oh, these silly consumers not knowing. But actually, it's a really logical statement. You know, they're, what they're trying to say to you is, I don't like oak Chardonnay, or I've had a crappy oak Chardonnay in the past, and I love Chablis because it's unoaked and it's delicious. So it's a really sensible statement, if anything. And, and I think that ABC probably grew from that over oaking and not doing it in the right way mainly in the 90s 
you're absolutely right about that sort of rolling of the eyes in the wine world when people say, oh, I love I love a Chablis, but I don't like a Chardonnay. But yeah, you, they, they, it's really interesting to think about the, the, the statement they're making when they uh, when they say that rather than just just laughing at them. Uh, there speaks a man who who sells wine and understands the importance of, of talking to to consumers um, as a variety. Um, it's very much um, to use the old um, uh, access Mastercard uh, statement, a flexible friend, isn't it, Chardonnay? It really, really is. I mean, it, it really, I think it's it's probably one of the best varieties for showing terroir. So that's that's a kind of starting point. But I think it is the best variety for showing what a winemaker can do. And you can, you know, you can make quite flashy Chardonnays. And I suppose in my mind, I'm thinking kind of Napa, Sonoma, California in general for the flashy Chardonnays. But I have to say, I love those styles, you know, it's a, you know, in, in some ways they themselves are a little bit naff, but, you know, to me, the best white wines in the world, maybe just maybe Riesling sneaks in there as well, but the best white wines in the world tend to um, tend to be oaked. So, you know, the winemaker's hand is really important with Chardonnay, I feel. And uh, I'm so pleased to hear you extolling the virtues of those uh, those Californian Chardonnays. Um, I love a Carneros. I love it on an aeroplane oh, because it's one of the best wines you can have on an aeroplane. A, a Carneros Chardonnay, I think, because because you've got something that's a bit more uh, a bit more obvious there, but but in a good way. Um, it's all about um, integration and, and and work with the oak, isn't it? It's it's, it's really very complicated uh, for, for, in winemaking terms. Isn't so it? complicated, so complicated. I mean, like. I think in one sense, you could almost look at oak as being as complicated as grape varieties and 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 wine itself. So you have obviously the forest from which it comes from can can um, affect the grain of the oak. And of course, the grain of the oak affects the integration of flavor and tannin that come from the oak as well. And I do think that's a that's a particularly important thing now. And, you know, we, we have to realize that oak does add tannin and it adds a level of bite and texture to the wines and it's a really really interesting thing particularly now when we're when we're looking at climate change so the, obviously the classic region for chardonnay is burgundy but i remember talking to um long depaki which is the the chablis from albert bichot i remember talking to their winemaker about uh, climate change in particular and he said that he changed the forest from which he sourced the oak for his 09 Chablis. And the reason for that was that he wanted to add more bite to the Chablis because the acid was going down. And I just thought that was absolutely fascinating because he was trying to protect the style of, of Chablis, which is that vibrant kind of, um, you know, zippy style of Chardonnay. And his way of doing it was, well, look, I'm going to change oak. And it's just amazing to think that people can be so kind of ingenious with their tools. I, I, I adore it. Yeah, it, it, and it's just fascinating that, that oak plays um, such an, an important role. Um, Burgundy is one of your particular favourites. Um, and of course, Chardonnay, as you said, is very expressive of terroir. And terroir is, is everything in, in Burgundy. So uh, how does that uh, terroir sort of manifest itself in, in Chardonnay in Burgundy? It's a, it's, it's a really, really interesting uh, like topic of discussion, I think. And, and I think you've got people in the wine world who are on all sorts of different sides with it. Like 100%, obviously, there is a massive difference between 
the styles in Chablis, the most northern part of Burgundy, and say if you take the Mackinac as the kind of most southern part of Burgundy, there's there's in terms of style for the main wines, they both tend not to oak the wines, which means that there are similarities, but the generosity is so, so different down in the, in the Mackinac, whereas, you know, Chablis up the top is much more lean and, and mineral focused. And then you have the, the kind of great wines of the Cote d'Or between those two points, which are totally different as well. And obviously the you know, Chardonnay, I suppose most people would consider its home to be those great villages of Chassan, Polini and Merceau. And I have a particular love personally with Merceau. And what's really, really interesting, I know when I started working in the wine world, Merceau, you know, the description was this really oily, fat kind of style of Chardonnay. And I, I never really saw that personally. Um, I know some producers really do push the the, the full bodiedness, shall we say, of Merceau. But in general, to me, the the thing that makes Merceau so standoutish is that it it has depth and concentration, and for want of a better word, bigness. But it it is so kind of fresh and mineral at the same time. It, really the standout village um, in, in Burgundy for me, despite the fact it's the one without the Grand Cruz, which is always quite interesting. Yes, it's slightly sort of perverse that, but I, I guess they don't, they don't really need them now. But um, uh, where else is Chardonnay the great to watch? You've mentioned Burgundy, obviously, and you've mentioned California. Where else should we look for outstanding Chardonnay in your mind? I think South Africa. I think South Africa makes absolutely delightful Chardonnay. Um, and, you know, it's got that beautiful kind of cool climate thing all around that region around Cape Town. Um, Elgin Valley, I tasted a delicious wine from Elgin Ridge just last week, which I thought was absolutely delicious. And that was their Bin 282 Chardonnay, which again, for me, was in that Chablis vein in terms of its, it was pithy and mineral and vibrant and you know just delicious but but i think i think chardonnay from from south africa is is really one to watch and like we said you know it is kind of winemaker's best friend in many ways and you know south africa have some absolutely fantastic winemakers they even have one of the best winemaking universities in the world in, in stellenbosch university so these are people who they know how to make wine and, and also, I think we'd all agree with the young guns and the kind of Swartland revolution set. They also know when not to do the winemaking bit, which is uh, which is a pretty good skill as well. Absolutely. Uh, time to show off then. Uh, and it's uh, permitted. You're allowed to show off. What's the best Chardonnay you've ever tasted? So I, I always worry with that best word because, you know, I, I think for me, it's about moments and whether or not I would score this the highest of all of the Chardonnays that I've tasted, I don't know, but probably it would certainly be up there. But the 1996 Domaine Le Flave, and it's their Polini Montrachet Premier Cru Les Pucelles. Now, I was very, very lucky. Um, I used to work at a fantastic wine merchant in London called Hanford Wines in South Kensington. And we found a case of the 1996 in, 
in in stock in in a kind of um, in a in a consumer's uh, bond that we were keeping for them, and they wanted to sell it because they were terrified about premox. And you know, I, I suppose we can't really talk about um, about Chardonnay and Burgundy in general without thinking about premox. But it is that premature oxidation, and and it really suffered a lot of Burgundy wines suffered maybe from 1996 to basically 2004. Um, and and those wines, you know, they were they were kind of browning and flattening um, way too quickly in their life cycle, way way too quickly. So this this gentleman that had this case in '96, he just wanted to get rid of it, and we paid him a very fair price for it, I will say. And um, myself and Greg, we went for lunch in Medlar um, in Chelsea, as one does when one is a, a wine merchant in South Kensington. <laughs> and we opened this bottle half thinking that the wine was going to be absolutely shot, half thinking the wine was going to be destroyed. And it was pristine. It, this, this is probably in 2012 or 2013. So the wine had already had its 15 years of aging, give or take. And honestly, it was like a, a five-year-old wine. It was so, so, so vibrant and pure and fresh. And with Medlar's food, it was just absolutely fantastic. I have wow. to say, there's a little element as well when you expect a wine to maybe not be amazing and then it shocks you at how good it is. You know, that it, it's like that thing of someone, you go to the cinema and someone says to you beforehand, oh, this is a crap film, you're not going to enjoy it at all. And then yes. you come out hold on, that was great. What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. Oh, expectation management. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, has premature oxidation gone, by the way, now as an issue? Um, I, I, it, it has gone in terms of, I think people have put in places enough changes, but, but it has not gone in that it has kind of changed collectors' uh, mind frame, their whole mindset around white burgundy, and people are just drinking them earlier than they would have 10 years ago. You know, um, one, like to me, one of, the, one of the most beautiful, beautiful drinks of all is, is aged white burgundy. And sadly, we're just so terrified about them not being good condition anymore that we tend to we've kind of changed our whole drinking habits to even drink you know grand cruise and premier cruise maybe with only two three five years of age where previously they would have been 10 20 years of age so it's a i think maybe eternally altered our mindset on it but but the winemaking practices have changed as well because the winemakers in burgundy they just can't take the risk um of of having their grand cruise and premier cruise returned to them because that's their livelihood you know yeah yeah oh, good well it's good to hear that it's um less of a worry than it was at least even if it has changed mindset slightly um uh, you mentioned or i mentioned rather that you're on the judging committee at the iwsc for which i also judge um, tell us um, uh, what that actually entails, being on that committee. Well, well, well first of all, I, I suppose, as the listeners know, like IWSC is the International Wine Spirits Competition, and it's you know one of the longest-running um, wine and spirits competitions um, on the planet. And it, it, 
really has a fantastic level of judges um, on each of the panels, you know, um, so much experience when you look around the room. So it's an absolute honor to be part of any of those panels, I have to say. And on a day to day, when I'm in there as part of the judging committee, effectively, one of the things you're doing is just you're just making sure that all of the panels are tasting consistently. And really what that means is if if panel one, you know, there might be four people on the panel and someone is scoring things consistently at 90, 90, 90, and all the other judges are at 85, so 90 being a silver and 85 just being a bronze, you're kind of saying to yourself, okay, the person who's at 90 all the time, they're being too generous here, or the other side of it is maybe the guys that are at 85 are, are, are being too harsh. So it's, it's just trying to get that level of consistency. And the way that you go about doing that is going and tasting with um, all the panels. So it's really, really good fun. I mean, um, you've been there, David, when there's been 30, 40 people, um, you know, over two floors. And, and you might be tasting with a panel of five people. And I'm lucky to be tasting with all 30 people. You know, obviously, I'm spread out, but but it's just brilliant. And you you learn so much from people when you're tasting with them. So it's, a, it's an absolute honor, I have to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I've, uh, I'm very I'm delighted to be part of it, but I, I learned so much uh, through doing it as, as well. So, um, well, hope to see you there um, sometime soon. And thank you so much uh, for talking to us uh, on the drinking hour today, Mick. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I should just say, I have one more bottle of that 1996 Pucelle. So may, maybe I'll have to bring it to London with me one time and we might be able to indulge. OK, it's a deal. <laughs> thank you. Ready forward to that. See you soon. Thanks so much. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time for our next trio of recommendations, and we start with a vintage potato vodka awarded a whopping 99 points, getting it a gold outstanding. Vestal Vintage 2015 Potato Vodka was described by the judges like this. Sublimely autumnal, earthy, sweet, soft clods of steamy cooked vegetable aromas laced with rich velvety asparagus, agave and white pepper. Luxuriously ripe red fruits crumbled marvellously into autumnal garden essence. Honeyed, complex and profoundly enjoyable as is the tasting note. That is available at thewhiskeyexchange.com for 19.95, which is not bad for 99 points. Next to South Africa and a silver medal winning wine, Trig Beacon Pinot Noir 2019 from Elevation Vineyards. Made by a self-taught winemaker, the grapes come from the high elevations of Elgin, hence the name. The judge said, dried cranberry and red cherry on the nose, black cherry and strawberry on the palate with fine silky tannins, fresh and zingy. And that's at Tanner's Wines for £15.80. And a bronze medal winner from Chile, Vina La Rosa, La Capitana, Carmenera 2019. The judges said bold and warming with plenty of jammy black currants and a touch of characteristic soy sauce. And that is £14.20 at Wine Cellar Club .co.uk The Drinking Hour on Food FM Tequila is often described as Mexico's gift to the world 
but it's mezcal that has been turning heads more recently in fashion, thanks in large part to its broader range of styles. So what's the difference and which should you choose if you have to choose between them, of course? Well, Dawn Davis is a master of wine. She's buying director for the Whiskey Exchange. Hello, Dawn. Welcome to The Drinking Hour. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, so you're a master of wine, but actually, uh, if there was such a thing as a master of spirits, I think you would be one. And you've said, uh, I, I was doing my research, that actually uh, tequila and mezcal is the closest as a master of wine. How so? So for me, really, it's anything you have that's a product that's grown in the soil, especially for a long period of time. And if you think about agave, agave actually takes between five years plus. I mean, some of these agave plants are so much older. Um, that they have to imbue something that comes from the soil and the climate and the areas they've grown because they spend so much time within those environments. And if we look at wine, it's the same, you know, wine minimum three years before you can even harvest and, and call it wine. Um, and, you know, vines can go to 100 years plus. So I think for me, it's, and having tasted quite a few tequilas and mezcals now over the years, I really think there's definitely a sense of place there's definitely especially with mezcal because they're not just using so with with tequila you're only using the blue agave if it's a hundred percent tequila um if you have mezcal you can use lots and lots of different agave plants and all of them very very unique in flavor so you could taste the madracuche next to an espadin and they're very very different some some give off kind of more fruity characters, some give us more grassy characters. And it's really, really interesting. And you think about the environment in Mexico. Mexico is not just sort of, I think people have in their heads this idea of a desert state or something like that. Mexico is not like that. It has highlands, it has valleys, it has humid areas, it has very dry areas, it has areas with sort of rainforest almost, you know. Oh, yeah. it, the same with wine. Wine is affected. Terroir, if we really break it down, is the effect of an area on a plant. Um, and I think, you know, with tequila and with more so with mezcal, you really, really get that. Uh, so it's a really good point, And it's one that I hadn't really thought about until I was doing my homework for this. Uh, we should do the fundamental. You kind of hit upon uh, the fundamentals uh, just now briefly. But the difference between tequila and mezcal. Take us through that. Um, I always like to liken them for those people that know cognac and armagnac um, in a similar way that tequila essentially has to be made, if it's 100% tequila, from a plant. So the cactus is, uh, the agave plant is not a cactus, it's actually from the lily family. And it has to be from, a, for tequila, 100% blue agave, which is a blue agave weber, which is a type of um, agave. For mezcal, you can use many different styles. Also with tequila, it has to come mainly from Jalisco or five different states. And mezcal has a broader area and different areas that you can make mezcal from. Also, there's quite a lot of difference with the process of distillation and, and fermentation and, and the actual production of both. So with tequila, it's a, I don't like to use the word industrial, um, but there is probably um, less sort of sort of small producers making it, even though there are small producers. So it's it tends to be done on a bigger scale, um, normally double distillation in pot stills, 
um, although other stills are still used now, it has to, it's, sometimes it's added yeasts, whereas mezcal, it's much more about natural fermentation, which all, also gives you lots of different flavors. Mezcal actually tends to be a bit more of a rustic process. It's still quite traditionally made, whereas with mezcal, you know, the steaming of the agave plant is very much done in big autoclaves. Um, with mezcal, they actually cook the, the agave plant. Um, to, so you get this almost in some mezcals, depending on how they've roasted them to release the sugars, you get almost a smokiness, which I think is why some people sort of can't get their heads around mezcal. Um, but yeah, so for me, where you have cognac, which is almost sort of a little bit more sort of, I don't want to use the word made, but it is, it has more human intervention. Um, whereas um, if you look at something like Armagnac, which is a lot more rustic, it's single distillation, it's, you've got a lot more congeners and flavours, that's how I would look at it. Yeah, um, it, it's a great parallel actually, I, I like that. The terminology, um, you also need to know if you're uh, sort of rooting out uh, your uh, tequila or mezcal, some of the other terminology, things like uh, reposado, uh, that, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Do you want to explain what else we need to, to look for with those, those terms? Yeah, so with tequila, when you're looking at things that say blanco, reposado, and añejo, or extra añejo, that's all about the aging. So a blanco is up to 60 days aging. It's basically fresh off the still, for want of a, a better way of describing it. Reposado means it's been aged in some oak, normally American oak. Añejo is one to three years, um, and in slightly bigger um, bigger oak, uh, or well, Actually, Reposado can be in any size, but Añejo, there is a regulation around the oak size. And extra Añejo is about three years. So for me, really, um, I love Blanco tequilas, but Reposado, I think, also has a little bit more character, a little bit more interest, just because that very short period in oak. I sometimes find with Añejos and extra Añejos that the oak tends to dominate that lovely sort of vibrancy that you get from sort of a Blanco tequila, that lovely sort of grassy, herbaceous character, that lovely fruit. Um, so I'm, a, I'm more of a fan of either a Blanco or a Reposado. And I mean, really with Mezcal, they're mainly, mainly sort of very young styles, they're straight off the stills, but you can have ones that have been aged in oak, although those don't seem to be seen so much. So a Reposado would be sort of two months plus, um, and an Añejo would be 12 months. So it follows a, a slightly similar pattern to tequila. It's fair to say tequila and mezcal, uh, probably less so the latter, because it has been less well known internationally. They've had a bit of a bad rap, um, synonymous with being given as shots, um, worms, um, salt, that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a kind of miscarriage of justice, really, isn't it? I think we all have, you know, that one drink that we had when we were younger that we will we say we would never drink again you know um i've said that about quite a few different styles of drink um, but yeah tequila seems to have been the one and also because i think tequila is often associated with having a shot with lemon and salt and yes fine have a shot with lemon and salt but actually when you have a good quality tequila they're absolutely great for sipping you know if you want something super fresh and vibrant uh, they're, they're fantastic and same with mezcal you know I think mezcal it's all been about the worm and most mezcals you see in in sort of the UK if they have a worm run the other way um, because <laughs> they are not good and they will definitely give you a hangover but when you have a pure mezcal I mean and I, I definitely probably shouldn't say this drink responsibly folks but 
I, when you have really pure spirit, like a proper, proper mezcal or a proper tequila, you you don't have any of those horrible things that are going into your body. So it's, it's actually quite a pure spirit. Um, so, you know, I, definitely with mezcal, I, 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 I love it. You know, there's so much variety of flavor and styles and, and everything. But yeah, they have had a bad rap. And I think it's, it's totally unjustified because like any spirit, if you buy cheap, you get crap or you get bad you get bad liquid you know if you spend a little bit of money you don't have to go crazy but just a little bit more you'll definitely see the benefits not even within making cocktails because you know if you think about a cocktail or you think about cooking when you cook with great ingredients you can cook something very simple but it can be fantastic if you use great ingredients in a cocktail the results are the same yeah it's a really good point because i think people can sometimes think do you know what i'm hiding this in a cocktail so therefore it doesn't matter quite as much but actually you're absolutely right it's the the quality of the cocktail at the other end really reflects what you put in it just as it as ingredients do with with cooking so it's a really good point it sounds like you have a preference for mezcal over tequila um i think mezcal has probably captured my heart a little bit more i i think there's more parallels to to the wine world to things like rum agricole which i also really really love um and i think the what i find is there's a, a greater variety of flavors so you know if you if you take things like del Maguey, who's one of the kind of people that brought um, mezcal to the UK and really sort of brought mezcal to the world, they look at different villages and you can really taste the different styles within them. If you look at people like Koch, um, they use different sort of um, mezcal uh, agave plants and you can really tell the difference. Tequila, I think, has become a little bit maybe too industrialized to a degree. I mean, there are still some absolutely fantastic tequilas out there and, you know, definitely there's there's so much there to kind of taste and try but yeah i think mezcal just for me has a little bit more kind of character but then i guess you could say i'm an armagnac girl i'm an isla whiskey girl um so i like those kind of stronger richer flavors which in in mezcal i think you tend to tend to find both tequila and mezcal are very closely associated with cocktails um is that a good or a bad thing um, i think anything where there's versatility in how you drink a spirit is fantastic you know for me I, I love cocktails i love going to bars one of my favorite drinks is a tommy's margarita which is actually a margarita that you don't sugar syrup agave syrup and you know i think if, like why not the more versatile a spirit is the more people will be willing to try it so you know like for me i love a mezcal and tonic it's a, a great drink or a mezcal and soda um you know it's something a little bit different it, it, just fabulous. So I, I love the fact that there's versatility in spirit. Um, I think that's super important to get a wider public drinking it. Mezcal and tonic sounds interesting. It's not something I've ever done. Why does that work so well, do you think? Um, I just quite like, and especially if you have a slightly smoky mezcal or one that's got a little bit of sort of pungency to it, it kind of, I sometimes find tonic a little too, too sweet, but mm, just that yeah. kind of savoriness of the mezcal with the tonic just works beautifully and you know i just don't i don't put any garnishes in it i don't mess around with it i literally just have ice and the the mezcal and the tonic and i just find it quite an interesting flavor combination it's almost like that umami that sort of sweet savory kind of thing um which i, yeah. I just love to drink 
Yeah. Well, very anti-gin moment. So. <laughs> okay. Well, that's uh, definitely going to try that because it sounds uh, really interesting. And uh, I think you're right. You know, the, the tonic, um, it, it needs something quite sort of almost savoury, certainly umami uh, sometimes, just to, to kind of avoid that slight sort of sweetness. So I think that's that's really interesting. You you talked earlier on about um, about the sort of similarities with wine. Um, in one of your educational films uh, that I was uh, looking at, um, they're, they're great, by the way, they're really very, very Thank good, you. uh, the YouTube uh, movies. Um, you talked about uh, tequila and mezcal really having a sense of place, um, sort of terroir, if you like. How does that sort of manifest itself? What do you mean? Um, I think anything like if you I'll take wine as an example because I think it's it's the easiest way to explain what terroir is and so I should be able to taste one the grape variety so if I pick up a glass blind I should be able to say to you this is a Pinot Noir and there's characters that are associated with that grape variety I then should be able to break it down even further to you and say okay this is a Pinot Noir from Burgundy because it has these characters and that's where I think with spirits you don't often find that you 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 can very much maybe tell a distillery character for sure um, but I think there's less of a sense of place um, because the, the sense of place in spirits normally comes through the distillery or the methods of production and the people that create it which is a very different terroir to a wine terroir if you then look at something like mezcal or tequila, okay, tequila, for example, um, if you look at the the, so the, the valley, um, it's different soil, it's different climate. You go up high to the highlands, there's a different altitude. That does different things to the plants. It takes a lot much longer for them to grow and develop. So you're going to get more complexity of flavor. And, you know, if you have different styles of agave, then you're going to get different flavors from those agave because they have different growing seasons. They are different sizes. There's so many things that affect it. And I am definitely not um, a good enough tequila expert or mezcal expert to stick my nose in and say, this is this, this is this. But I think there are definitely things that I get from certain agaves. So espadin, for example, I always get quite a lot of sort of fruit and a lovely little vegetal note behind, you know. So that for me really says that there has to be and i'd love to go and really really spend time just really tasting back and forth back and forth back and forth because that's where you really learn to blind taste but really get a sense of place is if you can stick your nose in the spirit and there's people out there um you know we're very fortunate to work with some amazing people in this industry um that can definitely do that can stick their nose into it and say this is x agave plant or i think this is from x village because they have a character um and part of it is going to come from production there's there's no hiding that but in wine it comes from production but i think there's definitely a sense of place around it and and actually you know mezcal is one of the spirits in the world with things like um armagnac and cognac that are aops they are protected regions of origin and that only happens where you have a sense of place and the mm. sense of style coming from that sense of place. So you couldn't make a tequila or a mezcal from anywhere else in the world but that region. And that shouts terroir to me. Yeah, no, good, good point. And you were talking about uh, uh, being a tequila and a mezcal expert. I, I think you are pretty expert myself, to be honest. But <laughs> and Dawn, the world lost probably one of its leading experts in uh, tequila and mezcal uh, just this week, didn't it? Yes, um, we had a real loss to our family. Um, Thomas Estes, who for me is the man that taught me 
the, my love of agave. Um, he was an absolute inspiration to us all. He has so much passion, so much knowledge, um, just the most kindest, gentlest man in the world. And it's a great loss for us in the industry because he really taught us all. I mean, I think he was probably in the UK, if not globally, one of the, the sort of the fathers of bringing the world of the word of tequila to all of us. Um, he wrote an amazing book called The Tequila Ambassador. And he just imbued in all of us a sense of how amazing this liquid is. And, and I think that's why today that we all go out with such passion um, because of people like Tomas. And it's been a real loss to all of us. Um, but we are thankful every day to have had him in our lives to give us such passion for what is an incredible liquid. Well, uh, we should uh, definitely uh, raise uh, a glass uh, for tequila or, or mezcal to uh, Tomas um, this evening then. Um, maybe Absolutely. we'll wait until this evening. But um, all right, Dawn, it's uh, really fascinating always actually talking to you about uh, any drink. But um, I've learned a lot uh, just from this uh, sort of 20 minutes or so. So thank you so much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. No, my absolute pleasure. And, you know, we there's so many mezcals and tequilas out there. Go and experiment and try and take taste different things you know the whiskey exchange has has a whole host of them um that you can dabble into so it's it's a real pleasure to be talking about them because it Great. is just such a fantastic category yeah there's a bewildering array you're right so uh, so check out that uh, whiskey exchange website thanks dawn pleasure thank you the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. And there's just time for our final trio of medal-winning wines and spirits. And of course, we have to start with a medal-winning mezcal. Um, Coq Madrecouche Mezcal won gold with 96 points. Uh, Madrecouche, which I hope I am pronouncing correctly, uh, Dawn would have been able to tell me, is a type of agave. It's taller than most, apparently, and it's celebrated for its intensity. The judges said expressive aromas of pina colada, vanilla, chocolate and white pepper. An enchanting floral burst on the palate is soon followed by a flavoursome deluge of salted chocolate, ripening plums and creamy caramel. A concluding lift of menthol prolongs the finish. And that is £66.45 at thewhiskeyexchange.com, the one we've just been mentioning. Next, a gold medal winning Rioja, Marque de la Concordia, Reserva 2015, described by the judges this way, a quintessential food wine, showing off its elegance and complexity through its focus on traditional flavours of earth and undergrowth, intertwined with the modern feel of blackberry fruit and elegant use of oak, an understated classic yet to peak. And that one is available at Amazon for just $14.99, which is not bad at all for a gold medal winner. And to Italy and a silver medal winner, Torre Mura Cora 2018, a Sicilian blend of Norello Mascalesi and Norello Capuccio from the slopes of Mount Etna. They're both Etna grape varieties. The judges said spicy and minerally. Fresh Morello cherries and cranberries balanced delicately on the palate with a touch of oak and some wonderful silky tannins, lovely and fresh. It sounds delicious. I uh, just adore those um, Etna wines, both red and white. And that one is £17.96 at tanico.co.uk. And that is it, I'm afraid, for another episode 
of The Drinking Hour. If you liked what you heard, uh, please tune in again. And uh, if you would give us a five star rating as well, as it really helps uh, lift the prominence of The Drinking Hour. Uh, you can contact us on email at thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com or you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at foodfmradio and I am at Mr Venusaurus on both Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.